Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Do you find it difficult to live godly when everyone around you is not? You're not alone, and it's not a new problem. Over 2,500 years ago, a teenager was forced to live in exile in one of the most ungodly cultures the earth has ever seen. Despite the challenges and persecution, he found a way to honor God in everything he did. His example is still powerful for us today. Join us now for a six-part series on Daniel as we learn to live life in exile. All right, good morning. Welcome to Grace Live. How are you guys doing? Yeah, who's excited? All right, so hey, before we jump into the message, I want to give you an update on where we are with the building. Uh, some of you have seen this before. This is the, our capital campaign we kicked off back in March, talking about the next phase of life for us as a church. We are currently meeting in this warehouse rented space. We've been here for about eight years, and uh, we do hope to move out someday. So if you're new to Grace Life, if you've never seen this, how about the next pick here? There you go. Or is it already on the screen? There's one ahead of me. Back up. There you go. That's cool. How cool is that? Uh, in case you're wondering, that's about 100 yards that way on Clemson Road. We just got a visit this week from our representative of the DOT uh, talking to us about what they're going to do as they widen this road, which they're going to be doing in just the uh, next uh, 12 months or less. And the cool thing about that is it'll be five lanes right in front of our property, over 20,000 cars a day driving in front of it. Uh, pretty cool beacon for the community. What do you say? Who's excited? Anybody? Yeah. And so here's where we are. Um, you know, people keep asking me, where are we? What's going on with the building? Because you don't see any dirt moving. Well, behind the scenes, we're doing a lot of talks. We're still uh, talking with the bank, talking with our architect, talking with our builder. We're getting everything in place, and we would love to break ground as soon as possible. One of the uh, things that's happening behind the scenes, of course, you may not see much going on, but when we started designing this building about a year and a half ago, we were about 325 people. And now we are about 600 people. So you can see there's a little bit of a problem, and we're working uh, to fix those problems and move a few walls here and there and do all that we can do without trying to make the price any higher than it already is. So with that being said, we've got over a million dollars in commitments coming in over the next three years, and that could be one-time gifts or monthly gifts or yearly gifts or whatever. Uh, that comes from 164 families or individuals who are committed to being a part of this, and ultimately that means so far we have over $430,000 received, which is really cool and important because that helps us get things started. So if, the, if you are new to this idea, if you'd like to know more about it, find out how you can be a part of what's going on, you can pick up one of these in the lobby. But even more importantly than picking up one of these in the lobby, I would encourage you to find that graphic on our website and click that button. It'll take you to the six messages that we did explaining who we are, where we're going, why we're doing what we're doing. And if you really want to find out how you can be a part of making this happen, I think hearing those messages are as important, if not more important, than just writing a check. Because this is what we're doing as a family, not just what we're doing as individuals giving money. Does that make sense? So there you go. All right. Well, with that being said, kicking off a new series today. Very excited about this. Choose who you will be. Sound like fun? It's actually a series based out of the book of Daniel. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at the first six chapters of Daniel. And if you know anything about Daniel, there are actually 12 chapters. And the first six are about Daniel's life, the events that he faced, the choices that he had to make. And then the last six chapters are more about his prophecy and the things that he saw in the spiritual realm and things related to end times. We are only going to focus on the first six for this series, but I want you to understand it doesn't mean we shouldn't learn about the other six. It just means it's a completely different topic for another series for another day. 
And so we're going to do these six chapters right now. As I was doing my research for this series, I came across uh, where someone else had preached on this, and, and he's one of the best teachers in our country today. His name is John Mark Comer from a Jesus Church in Portland. And uh, we, we're going to borrow some of his thoughts and ideas for this series, but just so you know, personally have his permission. He said, still everything. How cool is that? Uh, and, and the reason for that is because the kingdom of God needs to accomplish something on the earth, not fight over who wrote what. And so I appreciate his willingness to share, and uh, we want to give him credit. We don't want to plagiarize. Um, and so anything that's brilliant throughout the series is either from him or the Holy Spirit, and I just get to be the one talking. There you go. Now, I grew up going to vacation Bible school and Sunday school here in the South. And so I heard all about Daniel's stories growing up. So I knew about Daniel in the lion's den and how Daniel's friends were thrown into the fiery furnace and how Daniel would interpret weird writing on the walls and, and the dreams of kings and so forth. And so I knew these children's stories, so to speak. And if you're like me, you've heard some of the stories about Daniel, maybe all of them. And the thought that's going through your head right now is, why would anyone preach on kids' stories for six weeks how boring is this going to be? And, and I want to assure you that it's not going to be boring because it's really not about kids' stories at all. Matter of fact, the stories you may have learned as a kid were just events in a much greater, very grown-up plot. And that's what we're going to be looking at is Daniel's life and what he experienced and what that's going to mean to us. And so I know sometimes we look at series and you think about them just like you do movies. Oh, hey, we just finished a series at church. Wonder what's coming Sunday. Like, let me scroll through Fandango. What's the summer blockbuster? What's the fall blockbuster? What's, what do they have out there to entertain me when I go to the movies? What's my new entertainment at church? And these series are not designed like that. I take great pains to sit down with the Holy Spirit and say, what do we need to talk about? What will help us grow as a family of your people on the earth from this point to that point over this period of time? What will help us do that? And so I want to assure you that this is not going to be some boring thing with kids' things. It's also not going to be just entertainment for you. It is going to be a pivotal series. Whoever? Amen. Thank you. It is going to be one. All right. One person is glad that we're intentional about what we do. It is going to be a pivotal series for anyone who will ask the question of God, what does this mean to me over the next six weeks? I can promise you that. And I do think that it will be one of those hallmark things that we look back to over the course of our life as a church and understand what God is doing. With that being said, um, we're just going to jump right in. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can, you can actually turn there, those, those paper things. If y'all remember those paper things that you used to carry around, or the digital ones, those of you that are like checking your social media status, but you pretend that you're looking at their Bible on your phone. And whatever it is you're doing, we're just going to start right at the beginning because, again, we're going straight through the first six chapters over the next six weeks. And uh, I'm looking at the wrong thing at the moment. That's not going to be helpful. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, it will be on the screen behind my head if you need it. So here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and let's just make sure we understand here, Judah was the half, the southern half of the nation of Israel. They had gotten into a little um, squabble amongst their friends, and so the nation of Israel, as we know it, has now divided in half, and we've got Israel still as the north and Judah as the new south, and that's where they are. And Jerusalem, the famous uh, city, is actually in Judah, so that's where we are, okay? And so King Jehoiakim, three years on the throne, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which hopefully everybody who didn't sleep through middle school has at least heard the name Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, right? Everybody there? Okay. 
So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And I'm going to assume for everyone in the room, the same question comes to mind for you that did for me, which is, why? Why? Wait a minute, God. I thought we were reading about your people and your land. This is the promised land that you gave them. This is Jerusalem. This is where you sent your people. And you had said, you will be my people. I will be your God. And you gave them into his hand. Anybody goes, what? You know, kind of makes you a little bit worried about what tomorrow may hold. Let me uh, help us understand what's going on here. Okay, first of all, let's just talk politics. There are three great empires on the earth at this point in time. And uh, sorry to take you back to middle school, like social studies, but just give me a chance here. So there are three great empires, and poor little Israel is in the middle of them. And we've got the great empire of Assyria, the great empire of Babylon, and then the great empire of Egypt below Israel. And so what happens over time is Assyria does fall to Babylon. Now Babylon wants to be the only king reigning on the earth. And so in order to do that, they have to conquer Egypt. But there's a problem. There's this little place called Judah along the road, and they won't give them permission to kind of just come along and destroy the earth. So they end up taking over and besieging. And that's what's happened in the natural realm. But what's happened in the spiritual realm is for centuries, centuries, Prophet after prophet after prophet, if you ever read any of your Old Testament, you wonder what the heck is going on. Why are there so many prophets? Here's what's been happening. God started out in the very beginning saying, I will be your God, you'll be my people. But here's the way my people are going to act, and here's the way I will bless them as their God. If you will just do this, if you will live this way, if you will do these things. And time and time again, they did not do what God had asked them to do. They did not live in a way that honored him. This began just as soon as he set them free from Egypt and sent them to the promised land. If you remember any of the stories, if you've ever heard the stories, before they could even get there, they end up stopping, melting all of their jewelry down into a golden calf to worship this statue, even though God just miraculously delivered them. And this is their story, day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And God has repeatedly pleaded with them, would you please turn back to me? And had mercy upon them, saying, do not go down this path. Do not travel this way. I want to bless you. You are not honoring me. And unfortunately, what happens at this point in time is God fulfilled his word. Because God had spoken long, long ago for you and I. It is in the book of Leviticus where God had said, if you repeatedly turn from me and if you will not accept my correction, if you will not turn back to me, the ultimate end is you will be sent into exile. This was not a new thought. God didn't make this up. He had told them it would come, and he had told them how they could avoid it. He had sent them warning after warning and prophet after prophet, and yet they said, no, thank you. And so for free, this has nothing to do with the message really per se, but maybe there are people in here today that need to ask the question, how many times has the Holy Spirit touched on something in my life, and I've said, nah, just leave me alone. I'm going to keep going down this path. Because God has already determined what he will do with people that will not let him be their God. And I would just encourage you, don't push him to that point. So this is where we pick up the story that God is doing exactly what he said he would do, which is to bring correction to get their attention. And so, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, sorry, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Here's where we get into the exile. Both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Then the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that, they, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And here we go, among these people in exile, among these were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And that's where we pick up the story. So you're going to ask the question, obviously, what does this have to do with me? Why are we talking about this? Well, before we can understand what the story has to do with us, we need to understand the story. So here is clearly what has happened. Daniel is the cream of the crop among the youth. And so he's one of the people who was not left behind in a desolate, desolate place. Actually, they came to Israel. They picked up Daniel like other people. They took him over to Babylon. And Daniel will now live his life in exile, hoping to make an influence for the kingdom of God while he is there. But we first need to understand what is so great about Babylon. Does anybody truly just ever hear about Babylon? Do you remember that? Other than like, what is the TV show, um, Stargate Babylon or something? There's, there's that, there, was, there was a Babylon something in there, some space age something or another. Yeah, anybody? Middle school, does it come back to mind? Did y'all sleep through middle school? That's where you learned about it, by the way. Babylon was one of those great nations upon the earth. But here's the problem. If you've ever read your Bible from beginning to end, you've noticed Babylon keeps showing up, right? Anybody? And it's even in the end, it's in the book of Revelation. And if you did pay attention in middle school and you did read your Bible, you're thinking, how in the world does this nation exist for so long? I thought they fell. I thought eventually someone else conquered them. Yes, because what happens in scripture is that God uses Babylon to be an archetype for the success and the greatness of humanity. What that means is that all of the time in the Bible, especially as we get to the book of Revelation and even prior to um, the, where we actually are in the Bible, all the way back to Genesis, we start seeing uh, the idea of Babylon showing up as the representation of humanity and its greatness. Humanity saying, I can do this. We can build these wonderful cities. We can have these great accomplishments. Our culture will rule. We can stand against the idea of submitting to God. We are greater than any God. And so Babylon comes to represent this idea all throughout Scripture. And if we were to look back at this point in time, Babylon is the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. The greatest, no, sorry, this is the greatest thing the world has ever seen. So think about this, over 2,500 acres, it would, it's greater than cities on the, on, the, on the earth today. 2,500 acres surrounded by walls that are over 320 feet high. To enter the city, you've got to go through these very ornate, artistically built, uh, laden in gold and other types of things, uh, gates, and each one of them named after one of the gods of the people uh, that they would worship. And so what they would do, though, the greatest thing isn't so much even the walls or those sorts of things, but this thing that was inside of the city of Babylon. And it was called a ziggurat. And it was this great temple, this massive temple. And I'm not going to try with the name of it because I don't speak that language very well, but I'm going to tell you what the name meant. It meant house, let me go back to wherever in the world it is, house of the foundations of heaven and earth. This is the place where whatever you think of, of heaven comes down to earth. And this is where whatever we have on earth is great enough to go up to heaven that we can merge the two worlds and show the greatness 
of our world. And so, what we see all throughout Scripture is the idea of exalting humanity as itself and being great above God. Now, here's where you and I come in today, 2016 in America. If you've ever heard one of the old school kind of uh, preachers who gets up on a soapbox and they start talking about doomsday things and how bad tomorrow is going to be and how God's going to judge every nation upon the earth and how America is the new great what? Babylon. Okay, does anybody want to go hear that guy preach? No. And, and I don't want to be one of those people and I don't want to speak that message today, but. The truth is, in order for us to understand what God is doing and what we're going to get out of this series, we do have to admit and acknowledge that America fits the archetype that we see of Babylon in Scripture. And so before I go any further, I'm going to say this multiple times a day so that no one can misinterpret me. I love July 4th. I love America. This is not an unpatriotic message. So everybody's just going to flow with me on that, right? Okay, this is not in any way meant to attack America or to say there's a problem with it. I'm not going to tell us to immigrate. I'm going to tell us to stay right here, actually. I'm not going to tell you to burn a flag. I'm going to tell you, don't you dare. Okay, so everybody good? Everybody good as we go through this? But here's what we do need to understand is what uh, is similar about these, these two different worlds. So Babylon at the time was the greatest nation, the greatest economy, the greatest culture and everything. Let's look at America today and see if these statements would hold true. America today is the driving economy on the planet, true? Yes, so goes American finances, so goes the rest of the world, as we've seen happen starting in 2008 and so forth. Just like it was for Babylon of the day. How about this one? The greatest military superpower on the planet today is the United States. Who was it then? Babylon. And that is the picture we get all throughout Scripture. Even after the natural Babylon has been defeated, we see the great wars with the great Babylon and the great powers of Babylon. America is the primary culture which influences the entire world today. That is why you can travel anywhere, do just about anything, and the predominant language will be what? English. How about this? We created the thing that is rampant upon the earth today known as internet and social media. And even what we see happening in the Middle East as a result of the Arab Spring and all of their upheaval is a result of what? Social media. That's where it all began and took place. How about this? What is America founded upon the ideal of? Freedom. And what do we see every other nation continuing to fight for? Freedom. We could say this, America is arguably the greatest nation and empire on the planet today because we see the number of people that all want to leave their homes and come here. That's number one. But number two, because of the number of enemies we've attracted over the influence we have on their younger generations. Because their younger generations look and say, we want to be like that. They watch our movies, they watch our television shows, they listen to our music. And the cultures that they are raised in are being erased and forgotten for the sake of young teenagers wanting to grow up and be American. It's all they see and it's all they know. And so we've developed many haters as a result of it. My wife's a good example of this. She grew up in Romania in a communist nation and the worst dictator of recent era. And so she spent the first 15 years of her life standing in bread lines and understanding what it was like to not have the world that we had. And so the only representation she understood of America was what you see in media. And so true story, when we arrived on an airplane here, we landed in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we walked out of the airport. And one of the first things that she said at that point was, oh, you have trees. Because to the rest of the world, it all looks like New York City. In Los Angeles, and that's what makes the television, and they believe that that's, that's what we have, and everybody wants to be a part of that. So, 
Now, here's the whole point of today's message and what I need us to understand, or we're not going to, to make any headway here. Is just like Daniel, we must understand that we too live in exile. Do you know that? I didn't get a lot of head nods, which is okay, because I expected the majority of you to look at me and go, um, not sure I agree with that. You better keep talking and prove yourself. So here's kind of the point. This was easy for Daniel. You see, Daniel lives over here. Somebody comes and picks Daniel up, probably in actual shackles and chains, and they carry him over here before they let him go from the shackles and the chains. And they, at this point, he can look around. People look different. People speak a different language. Different flags are flying. The architecture is different. The food is different. The culture is different. Everything is different. There is nothing about this world where he lives that looks like the world where he was raised. And so this is where it breaks down for you and I, and this is why we think the only thing that the book of Daniel is good for is learning some children's stories because we think, what are you talking about, Jimmy? I don't live in exile. I have nothing to do with that. I grew up here. I speak the language everyone around me speaks. The same flag has always flown. The same colors have always been there. Uh, the, the laws have always been what they've been. I don't know anything except America. This is who I am. This is what I am. How can you dare say that we live in exile? Well, I'm going to say that it's harder for us to recognize what's going on around us, but this is very important for us to catch. The Bible tells us that we are sojourners in a foreign land. Have you ever heard some passages like this? The world is not our home, out of Hebrews, or out of Ephesians. It says, we are fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household. You see, unfortunately, if someone comes up to us and asks who we are, our first designation is an American. And there's nothing wrong with being an American. This is not an anti-American message. Everybody good with that? But what I want us to understand today is the idea of being an American should be your second or later designation. Our primary designation is citizen of the kingdom of God. And if we don't understand that, then we aren't going to look at the world around us and understand how we can learn from Daniel because Daniel was exiled into a kingdom that did not represent his values or his ways of living. And what I want to say to you today is that I don't think we have that option either. And so here's the reason for that. We are a minority in exile. Although we live on the earth in the United States today, we live in a post-Christian world. How many of you know the terminology post-Christian world? What that terminology means is that no longer does the Christian worldview dominate politics and culture. Can you agree with that statement? No longer does a Christian worldview dominate politics and culture. When someone is making a movie in Hollywood, they do not ask, wait a minute, which scenes in here do not line up with Scripture? When someone is passing a law, they do not ask, wait a minute, is this contrary to or in agreement with the Bible? When someone is running for office, they do not say, wait a minute, before you can uh, say that you're going to run for office, are you a Christian leader? We need to acknowledge that the world around us is what is known as a post-Christian world. And this has been happening for some time. Okay, so we, we, we went then in a positive direction in a sense. Jesus came to the earth, Jesus crucified, resurrected, and then the gospel began to spread. And for a season and in certain places, the separation of church and state did not exist and they became one. And I, I'm not even going to say if that was a good or a bad thing, but there was a season where most things were a Christian worldview, even if it was a distorted version of it trying to dominate the world in which we live. But over the last 200 years, and 
especially in the last 30 to 50 years in the United States, we have seen that rapidly decline. That in the last 20 years or so, we've seen the number of people that no longer identify as a Christian double in our country on a census. And so what we have to understand is that America is post-Christian. It is not what we would think as equal to the Bible. And if you're still in a little bit of a doubt, I want to point out this. If we were to just go outside and find a group of Americans, maybe some of them go to church, maybe some of them don't, but if we just found a large group of Americans and talked about what is mainstream, what identifies you, what we would recognize is that that group for the whole would not stand for, fight for, or promote biblical issues or biblical values. It's just not where we are. Matter of fact, if you need some examples in case you're still sitting there on the fence, not sure where we are, I want you to think about what is legal in the U.S. that is in disagreement with the Bible. Can I give you some examples? And you're not going to throw anything at me? Everybody good? How about this? Divorce for non-biblical reasons is legal in the United States. Abortion is legal in the United States. Racism is legal in the United States. Did y'all know that? I know y'all think, no, wait a minute, racism is real, but it's not legal. I would say, no, racism is legal. Did you know an institution or an organization like the KKK can get a permit and publicly protest walking down the streets of our country? How is that not legal racism? Anybody? Yeah, there you go. It's legal. How about this? Indentured servitude is legal in the United States. Did you know that? Y'all look at me like, what? I was given a scholarship to college that says you can go to college for free as long as you swear away four years of your life to this organization. That's indentured servitude. You really want to know what indentured servitude is? If I could really try to like step my toe into something here, is how about visa? How about our, our entire economy does not operate off of the idea that you use biblical principles of remaining debt-free and living your life the way that you would not be a slave to something else, but you would actually, in order to keep our economy going, we need people who are going to stay in debt to where tomorrow they owe for yesterday, indentured servitude. How about this one? Profiteering from the interest of its brothers. Do you know that the Bible strictly forbids God's children to make a profit off of interest from a loan to one of its brothers in the kingdom? Do you know that? And do you know our entire economy is based off of loaning money and getting interest as we get that back? I mean, that's even how insurance, you thought they did insurance? They don't do insurance. They just take your insurance policy and invest it. That's what they're all about. They're into making money off of interest. Let's stop talking about what's legal. Let's just talk about what's mainstream. United States culture, would you agree that greed? Would you agree that materialism is there? And, and if you're differing with me on that one, I just ask you, when is the last time that you opened up Architectural Digest and saw a house that any of us could afford? When was the last time you saw a magazine published on the lifestyles of the hobo and the middle class? When was the last time that you opened up one of those food magazines and it was like Cheetos and a bologna sandwich because that's all you could afford? Greed and materialism. How about this? Mainstream in the U.S., sex outside of marriage. Ouch. How many of you have watched a romantic comedy and when you're watching the romantic comedy and you finally get to the end and go, yes, that moment is not when the two of them go see their pastor and recognize their relationship as two of three parts connected together with God and holy marriage? No, the whoo, yes, celebration moment is when the two of them finally go to bed together. So the problem, why did I say all of that? Because the problem that we have is that we think that being an American is equal to being a Christian. And we think that living in an American culture is the same as living in a biblical culture. 
And so what that does is it allows you and me to live our lives as the majority in America would live their lives and to think that we are therefore happy with or God is therefore happy with us. Now, I'm going to go one step further because, again, I told you that this message was, was, uh, got some inspiration points from John Mark Comer, who is in Portland, Oregon. And he pointed out how as the post-Christian era is progressing, Europe was at the forefront, and then the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast took next step. And we are lagging severely behind, which is a good thing, if you would think about that, right? To be lagging behind in post-Christianity because we are in the Bible Belt. But I want to touch on something that I can touch on exclusively because I'm from the Bible Belt. I was raised here. I've lived my entire life here except for a short period of time when I was in Europe, which at the time was quite post-Christian. And so I can come back here and I believe I can speak to who we are and what we face every day and help us with this idea. You see, we believe because we're in the Bible Belt, we're in a safer place. We're in a more Christian place that we're in, in, in a good place to act like and live like a Christian. But I'm going to tell you, I think just the opposite. I think you and I live in the most deceptive place on the entire planet today. Not necessarily dangerous, different word, but most deceptive. And here is the reason for that. I want to share with you, as I was uh, doing something a few weeks ago, totally different message, I was just praying, and God immediately started to speak to me about this thing. And I, I got out some yellow sticky notes real quick and wrote it down called the Hallmarks of the Modern Bible Belt. When people seriously today talk about the Bible Belt and thinking that it's, it's God's place still on the earth, like the New Jerusalem, I want to show you how mistaken I believe they are. So if you want to write these down, we're going to put them on the screen for you. These are the hallmarks of the modern Bible Belt. Number one, there is an appearance of godliness, yet without substance. What that means is we do have a church on every corner. There is a church on every single corner almost. What it means to you and me is a belief that biblical truth and kingdom culture can also be found on every corner. But it can't. What it means is there's this outward idea that everyone has heard and everyone knows the truth of the gospel that basically everyone here is a Christian. But that's not true. And so what does what do all of these Christians, uh, I'm sorry, Christian buildings and or pseudo-Christian shrines, and sorry for me to say it that way, but you do realize that not every church on every corner actually promotes Jesus as king and the only way to salvation in the Bible is the word of God. So I think it's fair for me to say that some of them are pseudo-Christian shrines. What does it do to us to have one of these on every corner? The result is it gives us an incredibly deceptive belief that the majority of the world around us is Christian, and if we just go with the crowd, we're good. The problem is, although there is a church on every corner, there is not a Christian in every home. And we cannot just do what we see everyone around us doing. Number two, how about this one? There is a belief that conservative Southern values represent kingdom values. And being a conservative Southern, nobody get mad at me. But we need to understand that those two are not one and the same. But we get deceived into thinking it is because religious organizations and institutions dominate politics and policy. And no one in their right mind would run for office in the Bible Belt without telling you what church they go to, even if they don't go. Or even if they live their lives completely contrary to what they heard on Sunday, they'll still tell you what church they go to. And they will end their campaign stump speech with, God bless America. And as a result... We get the idea that we can just follow whatever laws they produce and believe that basically we're good. So here's an example of them, if I haven't offended you yet. Here's an example of them, is this thing we have in the South known as blue laws. Did anybody move in from the South and go, what in the world? Move into the South, that is. 
And we have these things called blue laws. And so if you're a good Southern conservative Christian, you think, way to go, lawmakers. You protect the Sabbath for me. You define the Sabbath for me. No, they don't define the Sabbath at all. They tell us what we can do, what hours we can do it, and how we can do it, which stores are open, when, and then, and all this sort of stuff, which is, is really pretty crazy when you think about it. Now, I want you to answer this for me. For Christians, see, here's the thing. Christians in the Bible Belt are deceived because they say, well, if the law says it's okay, it's okay because my lawmakers are Christians. So we're deceived. How about the non-Christians that move here and want to buy something outside of those hours? They resent our laws. They resent our lawmakers. They resent us. And when we try to invite them to church, they want nothing to do with the people who are legalizing our religion as some sort of morality over them. Wow. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be laws. What I'm saying is it destroys our ability to reach them because they now hate us. All I'm trying to say is that we can't look around at the Bible Belt and go, oh, good, thumbs up, it's all Christian. Because it's not. If I haven't offended you yet, let's keep going. Number three, the public toleration of Christianity makes it easy to live as a pseudo-Christian and not know the difference. You see, if you live somewhere where you will be persecuted, ostracized, and maybe even killed for being a Christian, saying that you were a Christian, knowing what it means to be a Christian, is a very big deal. But because there's a church on every corner, everybody will tell you what church they go to. Even if they don't, it's the cool in thing to do in the Bible Belt is to say you're a Christian. And so everyone here says they're a Christian for the most part. And many of them think they are Christians even though they have no clue of personal salvation through Jesus Christ. Highly deceptive. How about number four? And I think the worst one of them all, the missional church has disappeared. Here's what that means. A neighbor moves in next to you and you have two thoughts. First of all, well, if they're just good church-going folks, they're going to find one anyway because we got one on every corner. And if they're not good church-going folks, then I'm not going to invite them because them's going to make them mad at me, and then we're going to have that awkward wave in the driveway every time we see each other. Why would I want to do that? After all, they can find one on their own. Here's what has happened. The plethora of churches physically and geographically, we believe, will do the job that is yours and mine individually. And you and I no longer have to wake up and wonder if our next door neighbor, our coworker, or our family member is not headed to eternity with Jesus because we think between the blue laws and the politicians and the church on every corner, they've got it covered. You and I don't have to do anything. And the result is although the church has not disappeared, the missional church where every individual believer wakes up every single day and says, God, who do I need to touch today? That question is gone. Because it's such a Christian culture. Living in the Bible Belt is dangerously deceptive. So I said all that to bring us to this point. What is the challenge for you and I? What is, what is our challenge as we talk about living life in exile? Well, we have this choice. You see, we can either separate from culture, which is where we get over here and go, we will not go to your movies, we will not come to your parties, we will not do your thing, we will not act like you, we're going to live over here. Or we can do the exact opposite. We can completely assimilate into their culture and become one of them. Here are the two questions. If we separate, who will be missional to them since we are never with them? But if we assimilate, who will be missional to them since we are them? So the correct answer, of course, is neither. So what is the correct answer? You're going to hear these words all throughout the series. The whole series is about these words. The correct answer is we must live as a minority in exile. This world is not our home. This nation is not our home. This region of the United States is not our home. The kingdom is our home. He is our king. And that is what matters most. And that's what we have to understand. 
So if we're going to live as a minority in exile, I've just got some statements I want to read here. We will not be able to simply follow and join in with the majority. We cannot assume that we are basically one and the same with the majority. I do recognize that's harder for us than Daniel because we still live in the nation where we grew up, but the nation where we grew up is not the kingdom where we are headed. We are in exile. We will not be able to assume that the culture around us is an example of how to worship our God, very much like Daniel. You see, their ways are not, most likely will not, represent God's ways. We must stop assuming that what happens in our country or region is by default godly or that our politicians will live as our pastors. We cannot trust what is acceptable to our culture is acceptable to God. Here's what we should do. We must represent our God and his ways to the majority, even if that means pointing out we are the minority. We must treat the majority with respect and honor, which you may not have thought that's what I was trying to say today, but as we will see, that's the very thing Daniel did that gave him great influence to invite them into the kingdom. We must learn to live as sojourners in the U.S. and the Bible Belt in order to live as citizens in the kingdom. And if you've missed everything else I've said, listen to this one. We will have to live our lives as though this is the only way the majority will ever know the true nature of God. We must live as though we are the only Bible they will ever read. We must live separate because we are a minority in exile. So, welcome to the exile. That's our point today. The most important thing I need you to get before we can talk about how to live in exile, which is what we're going to do for the next five weeks, how to live in exile, is we need to understand we are. Because as long as we keep waking up and our primary designation is the same as a culture that is not living for the glory of God, that is not headed towards the kingdom of God, then we are misdirected. But if we can just wake up and recognize that we live surrounded by a culture that is not our primary designation, it can be secondary. Again, I love July 4th, and I love red, white, and blue, and I fly the flag on my house. This is not an anti-America message. This is a pro-kingdom citizen message. And simply understanding the difference. Understanding the difference. We need to grasp the reality. We are not Daniel living in Israel. We are Daniel living in Babylon. We are not Daniel living in a nation where everything centers on God and their laws are God's laws. No, we are not. We are Daniel in Babylon where the laws exalt humanity and its greatness and its achievements regardless of the moral compass it takes to get there. So your takeaway today is this one thing, that God would open your eyes to this scriptural truth. Look on the screen with me. That our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are a minority in exile. Welcome to the exile. I'm going to close by talking to a group of people that I hope has been paying very close attention all morning. You're a person who thought you were a Christian when you walked in the door because you've gone to church more times than you can count. You grew up in the South. You grew up in the Bible Belt. You grew up in America. And you think you're good with God because of those facts. And you need to understand, nope, nope. That means nothing. 
what matters is what's going on in you. What point in your life have you looked at Jesus on the cross and said, thank you for dying for me. Now I want to live for you. It means that I'm no longer going to live as the majority. I'm going to start to live as the minority. It's going to change how I think. It's going to change how I act. It's going to change how I respond. It's going to change some things I used to do. I am going to change because you died for me. I'm even going to go as far as to say there are people in this room that have said a prayer because you wanted to go to heaven, but you didn't actually start living as a minority in exile. That you continued living with a completely different designation. And I want to challenge you to do something about that today. If anybody would like to recognize what Jesus has done for you. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come down front. You don't have to shake my hand. We're going to pray right where you're seated. Would you all just join me and pray right where you're seated? Something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your forgiveness. I thank you that you died on the cross to take my place so that I would have citizenship in a kingdom greater than anything upon this earth. And my simple prayer in this place today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.